0: That I wanted to give. First of all, um, our Alaska missions team will be leaving on Friday and they'll be gone for a week, so I just wanted to ask you to keep them in prayer while they're away. Uh, Second of all, I wanted to let you know that we have a volunteer appreciation event that's coming up on Friday, July 22nd at 6 p.m. That's just an opportunity for all the people who volunteer in any capacity here at church to come together and have a good time together. We'll have a bounce house for the kids, and we'll have food, and we will have our annual super ultra-competitive cornhole competition. At the last volunteer appreciation dinner, the Mops team actually took the trophy. Took it or stole it, it's, kind of, it's hard to say. Um, but we're going to see if the men's ministry can take that back, or maybe the nursery ministry can steal it from them, but somebody better take it from the Mops team, all right? And then also I want to let you guys know that this will actually be Ian's last Sunday here. Um, yeah, really sad to see Ian go, but also happy for where God has taken him. Ian has served here super faithfully in so many capacities. Ian walked into church here when he was uh, at Houghton going to school, and I asked him if he wanted to get involved in the worship ministry, and he said, sure. And I asked him if he, what, he, what instruments he played, and he told me he played piano, but he didn't, definitely didn't play drums. And then, uh, then we asked him if he'd be willing to help with the youth ministry. And he said, sure. And so he's faithfully served for all the years that he's been here in the youth ministry. And then Ashley asked him if he'd be willing to serve in the children's ministry. And he said, sure. So he served in the children's ministry. And then someone sent me a video of Ian playing drums. And I'm like, you liar. You told me you didn't play drums. And he's like, I really don't. And I was like, well, you're, you're gonna. So... Ian even jumped in and learned how to play drums for us. He served so faithfully, and we just want to say thank you. We love you and appreciate all you invested here. So thanks. All right, so I want to wish all the fathers here a happy Father's Day, and I know holidays like this can bring different emotions for people. For some, it's an exciting and a fun holiday. For other people's it's could be sad because you lost a father recently, or maybe you didn't even have a, a dad in your life, or you had a dad who wasn't so good in your life, and it could be challenging. Um, but I believe the Lord has something He wants to speak to us here. And um, so I have a word here for dads, but I also, it's a word that each one of us can get something out of. I saw a meme in a pastor's group I'm in on Facebook this week, and they said. Um, they showed like a picture of somebody preaching at a a Mother's Day service, and they had like a cheerleader up there like, rah, 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 we can do it, you guys are the best, go for it. And then it was a Father's Day, and there was like a pastor up there with a whip, like cracking it, like, get your head in the game, you bunch of jokers, you know, whatever. So I promise I'll try not to beat you up too bad today, dads, and I'll try and encourage you guys along the way, all right? Society devalues masculinity, manhood, and fatherhood. Manhood is seriously under attack and without question is being redefined in our lifetime. You watch any shows these days and men are depicted as immature and undependable boys and fathers are depicted as a buffoon with a beer gut. We put together a couple uh, clips to illustrate this for you this morning. Check this video out. (laughs) Ha <laughs> Feet are short, and you don't raise your prices. I know that it's ugly. And then you fake it, you fake go. What else, right, huh? What else? You don't do anything in that cage. You don't find groceries. Diapers! Three kids, and you don't taste like ten diapers in your whole life. You can't do it, the diapers keep falling off. It's not right about all the kids that don't have this. Alright, so that's funny, but that is how society depicts dads. Let me tell you, manhood matters, and it makes a difference in people's lives. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of children with behavioral disorders are from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts fatherless homes. 75% of adolescent chemical abuse patients are from fatherless homes and 85% of all youth in prison are from fatherless homes. A dad's influence is so much greater than his mocked and diminished role in Western society. A mother's role is, is as equally as important. It's not really a question of which one is more important than the other. Really, it's a beautiful picture of how God, de- God designed the two to work together in a complementary and a harmonious way. The stakes could also not be higher spiritually. According to a study done by the Promise Keepers, uh, the Baptist Press, and the Lutheran Church, if a father does not attend church, even if the mother does, only 2% of those kids will become worshipers. In that same study, they found that if a father attends church, even if the mother doesn't, 66% of those kids will become regular worshipers. When both parents attend church, 75% of those kids will become worshipers regular worshipers. The stakes couldn't be higher for our kids. I don't know if you've realized it or not, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the world around us today, and it feels like the world is kind of coming unhinged. And I believe that fatherlessness is a big part of that, specifically the lack of godly fathers in the world today. There might be political things that need to change. There might be economic things that need attention, But I don't believe that any of those things will be as influential in changing the culture around us as godly dads rising up and being who God made them to be. I believe what this country maybe needs more than anything else is a generation of godly fathers who will rise up and lead their families. Amen? Amen. The title of my sermon this morning is The Influence of a Godly Dad. The Influence of a Godly Dad. In Joshua chapter 24... In the first 13 chapters, we have Joshua prophesying and speaking on behalf of God to the people. He's prophesying and telling the people, reminding them what God has done for them, reminding them how God has cared for them, reminding them how God has has, uh, nurtured them and provided for them. And then in verse 14, he says this, Now therefore, or now because of all that stuff that I just said, "...because of the way I provided for you and cared for you and nurtured you, fear the Lord." And that word fear means to honor, respect, or revere the Lord. "...and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve you the Lord. And if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood... Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? And then Joshua says this in response. He says, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God is saying we have to decide this day as dads who we're going to serve. Whether we're going to serve the gods of this world, the gods of power and money and position, or whether we're going to serve the one true God. Joshua wanted his family to serve the Lord. He wanted his kids to serve the Lord. But he didn't just say, as for my family, they will serve the Lord. Or as for my kids, they will serve the Lord. He knew it had to start with him. And he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I was recently watching a pastor's conference online. And uh, in that conference, there was a speaker talking about the most important thing that a pastor could give to their congregation. He said, the most important thing a pastor could give to their congregation isn't their eloquent preaching, it isn't their incredible teaching skills, it's not their leadership, it's not their wise counsel, it's not their influence. So the most important thing a pastor could give to their congregation is to have a real and a genuine relationship with Jesus. It sounds a lot like what Joshua was saying here, to serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. What he's saying is God doesn't want us to give a fake relationship with him. He doesn't just want us to roll into church on Sunday and check a box off. He wants us to have a real and a genuine and a deep relationship with God. And that's not just for pastors. That's for dads as well. The most important thing you could give your kids is not the best vacation in the world. It's not the nicest house on the street. It's not the best sports equipment. It's not the newest iPhone. It's not a pocket full of cash. Dads, the best thing, the most important thing you could give your kids is you yourself having a real, genuine, and deep relationship with Jesus. There's a mantra that the Jewish people had called the Shema, and it was something that they would recite to themselves over and over again throughout the day, and it would remind them who they were serving and why they were serving Him. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. Write them on the doorframe of your house and on the gate. This mantra was a mantra that the Jewish people would kind of chew on all day long, reminding themselves who the God is that they serve and reminding them why they serve him. But then it also told them to take that same God that they serve, take their love for God and to share it with their children. And it tells them when to share it with your children. It says to share it with them when you sit, and when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. This is basically telling them to share with your kids all the time. When you walk and when you sit, when you lie down and when you get up. It's saying to take this God that you love, this God that you serve, and share that God with your kids. And then it says to take, take it and tie it around your hand. As it turns out, everywhere you go, your hand goes. So it's saying take a reminder with you all the time, to share your God with your children. And then it says to write it across your forehead, meaning so that everyone who you interact with, everyone who you bump into, knows about this God that you're all about. And if that wasn't even enough, then it says to write it across the doorframe of your house so that every time you leave your house, you see that across the doorframe and you're reminded to go share this God that you care about. And if that's not enough, then it says to write it across the gate to your house so that every time you go home, you're reminded of this God that you serve, that you need to share that God with your kids. This was a scripture that my parents took very seriously. I felt like when we were growing up, they made God the center of our home. We talked about God all the time. Sometimes when I was growing up, it kind of annoyed me. Like My parents couldn't talk about anything without talking about God. Like it was time to learn the alphabet, and it was like, A, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jonathan shall be saved. I mean, it's just, like, can I just learn the letters? Nope, we're attaching scriptures to them. It's like, my parents made God the center of everything. So many times they say, well, let's pray about it and see what God has to say. Why don't you tell me what God, what God says about this, Jonathan? Or, well, I don't know if we should do that or not. Let's look it up in the Bible and see what God has to say. I remember when I was growing up one time, I wanted a four-wheeler or a go-kart so bad. I mean, I just wanted one so bad. It looked like so much fun. Like, there was so much ground I could tear up with that thing. Like, it was going to be, there's this huge yard out here. And I'm like, Dad, just let me rip that thing up. Come on. like, oh, man. And then the Evanses got a four-wheeler. And I'm like, Dad, the elder in the church got a four-wheeler. Like, it must be God's will for us. Come on. And he's like, well, let's pray about it and see if God will give us a four-wheeler. I'm like, no, you get the four-wheeler, and I'll pray about how to get the gas in there. Come on. Like, every time. What do you think God has to say? I can remember one specific time. I was 12 or 13 years old. I'm not exactly sure. And something my parents used to do was, uh, when it was our birthday, they would let us pick a restaurant we wanted to go to. I don't remember whose birthday it was that day, but we were somebody decided they wanted to go to a restaurant in Rochester. So we all piled into our blue Ford Taurus to head to Rochester, and uh, we had this Ford Taurus, and my parents had put a lot of money into it, like over a three-month period. It seemed like every couple weeks, like something was breaking on it, and they'd have to fix it, and they got to a point where they said, we're not putting any more money into this stupid thing. Like, one more thing breaks, it's going to the junkyard. Like, I'm just, I'm done with it. I'm not putting any more money into it. So we all pile into the car, and my dad goes to start it, and it cranks and cranks and cranks and cranks, and it doesn't start. If I remember right, the fuel pump went, had gone bad in it. So my dad was frustrated, and it's like, oh, man, what are we going to do? So he popped the hood, and he got out of the car, and I can remember, I, could see, I was sitting in the back seat. I had got the hump seat, so I was sitting right in the middle. So I could see through between the dashboard and the hood when he opened it. I could see him sitting over there, and he put his hand down on it, and he was looking down at it, trying to see if he could figure out what was going on. And I heard him say god i trust you god i trust you then later that day actually what happened was my dad ended up there used to be a car dealership on the corner over here like kind of in the grass next to the state trooper barracks it was dave webster auto sales or something like that so my dad went over there and said like hey can we uh take a car on a test drive to rochester and they said sure so we took a car and we went to rochester and we got our meal we came home my dad returned the car that he stole And uh, had no intention of buying, but he took it for a test drive. Sorry, Dave Webster. And uh, so I I went down to my room. It was late, and I went to bed, and I could hear my parents talking. And I used to listen to Adventures in Odyssey when I would fall asleep when I was a kid. So I I paused it so I could see if I could hear what my parents were saying. And they were talking about the fact that they didn't have enough money to buy a new car. They weren't sure what they were going to do. All their extra money had gone into fixing the thing over the last three months, and now they're like not sure what they're going to do. So I don't, know if, I don't know how serious my dad was when he said this, but he said, well, we don't have enough money. Maybe we should just take the money we have and put it in the offering and give it to God. And my mom said, like the loaves and the fish? And he laughed and said, yep. So I don't know what they did that day. I don't know if they took the money they had and they gave it to God, or maybe they used it as a down payment on the next vehicle. I have no idea. But that wasn't a joke for me when I was, when I was 12 or 13 years old, however old I was. I cannot even tell you how many times those same words have come out of my mouth. I can't tell you how many times I've come up to a situation where I didn't have enough money to pay a bill or to fix a car or I didn't have enough wisdom to give someone. I'd have someone come to talk to me about something, and I'm like, sheesh, I don't even know what to tell these people. I don't have anything encouraging to even say to them, God. like, What am I supposed to say? I don't have enough wisdom. And every time I say, God, what I have isn't enough, but I'm just going to give it to you and I'm going to ask you to multiply it, like the loaves and the fish. And time and time again, God has done that. Because I saw my parents talk about God and make God the center of every conversation we had in our home. I can't tell you how many times I've been in frustrating situations where I was like, I don't even know what to do. I don't know, how, why does this, God, why would you let this happen? I would say, I don't know. But i say, God, I trust you. Because I heard my dad say it that day, and it stuck with me. On on Monday, I was out working on a house and it was my day off here at church and I had kind of a list of projects to do. And I was repointing a foundation on a house and parging the wall. Jillian had stayed home from school because she had been sick. She was like coughing and had a sore throat. But by about 11 o'clock, she was feeling better. So she came out with me. She likes to work with me when I'm working on stuff, probably more than any of the other kids. She asks questions and she likes to get involved in that kind of stuff. So she was asking me what the Portland was and is that sand you're putting in there and how much water are you putting in there? So I had a cement mixer and I had her running the water for me and I was putting in the right amounts of stuff. And So then it it was rolling around in the cement mixer and it started to look like dog food. And she said, "Look, doesn't look right. And I said, yeah, what does it look like? She said, I think it needs more water. I said, yeah, I think so too. So she sprayed some more water in there and we got it to the consistency we need. And I started spreading it on the wall and making it all smooth and making it look good. And Jillian said, she asked me girly questions sometimes too. She says, what are you thinking about, Dad? And I wanted to be like, I'm not thinking about any kid, anything, kid. Just leave me alone, you know? But that wasn't really true. So I told her what I was thinking about. I said, oh, I've actually been praying for you that you, God would help you to feel better because you've been sick and we've got a ton of stuff going on this week and I don't want you to miss any of the stuff that you have going on. And she said, oh, what else are you thinking about? And I said, well, I'm preaching on Sunday. So I was talking to God about what I was planning to share, and I asked him if there was anything else he wanted me to say or anything I shouldn't say. And she said, do you talk to God all the time? And I said, yeah, pretty much I do, like I try to. Just all throughout my day, I try and talk to God all the time. She said, me too. You know, I don't know if that conversation will become one that sticks with Jillian for the rest of her life. But I guarantee one of them is going to because they stuck in my life, because my parents made that the thing that we talked about in our house. And April and I have tried hard. We don't always do it perfect. We fail. Sometimes we go seasons and times where we didn't really talk about God as much as we should have. But we try and make God the central thing that we talk about in our life. And I know that some of those conversations are going to stick in the hearts of my kids. Amen? And this doesn't somehow just end When your kids are grown, if you have grown kids, don't stop talking to your kids about God. Maybe you're in your 80s and maybe your kids are in their 50s and you're like, "I I don't really have anything left to say to them. I'm just kind of along for the ride at this stage of my life. But think back about the time that you were in your 50s and remember about some of the things that you went through and try and find ways to encourage your kids, your grown kids, and continue to remind them of this God that you love and have committed your life to. So the first thing that godly dads do is they devote their families to the Lord. The second thing that godly dads do is godly dads discipline the ones that they love. And I don't mean they beat them. I don't mean they get frustrated and exasperate their kids. I mean they lovingly bring correction. Hebrews 12.6 says this, Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship." As discipline, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not a true son or daughter at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, while they thought was best, but God disciplines us for our good. In order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. That's the goal of discipline in that last line there. The goal is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what we're disciplining our kids for. But I want to go back to verse 10 for a second. It says this phrase as they thought best. Or another translation says, as seemed best to them. When I read that, I thought, that's kind of scary to me because a dad who disciplines as he thinks best and whose life isn't committed to the Lord and isn't submitted to the Holy Spirit, that can be kind of scary. Sometimes a dad who disciplines as he thinks best, who, who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord, sometimes that discipline looks like a fit of rage. Sometimes it looks like what's just convenient for them in the moment, but doesn't really care about what it produces in the kid. Discipline from a dad who's not committed to the Lord is more about what's convenient for the dad and less about what it produces in the kid. Dads, our discipline, must line up with the Word of God. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There's that word again so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Dads, our discipline must line up with the word of God. We're not disciplining the kids because they're annoying or being obnoxious to us. We're disciplining them in order to bring that fruit of peaceful righteousness. If your two-year-old kid spills his milk on the couch, and there wasn't a a lid on the cup, It's not your two-year-old that needs a spanking, it's you because you created that problem. But so many times we end up disciplining our kids when really there's a lot of stuff that is just being kids. Kids make messes, kids break stuff, kids do all this kind of stuff. And as parents, I think sometimes we tend to drive the car of discipline into one ditch or the other. And what I mean by that is we either go too far with the discipline and we're kind of like military parents or else we try and be our kid's best friend, we end up in the other ditch. We have to discipline our kids. It's biblical, and it's what God has called us to. I mean, just the reality of the situation is if you don't discipline your kid, they're probably going to die. Like, your kid running away from you, thinking it's funny and headed towards the street, this is not okay. Like, your kid is going to die if you don't discipline your kid and teach them to obey. This is what God (laughs) has called us to. But then we can't go to the far other extreme of being too, oh, too over the top in our discipline with our kids. We've got to walk the line of being in grace and truth. And the way that I feel like is most helpful to do that is for our lives to be submitted to the Holy Spirit and grounded in the Word of God. I've got to be honest and a little bit vulnerable here and tell you that discipline is one of the most tiring and grueling parts of being a parent. There's a lot of parts of being a parent that are fun and good, and there's some that are hard, but discipline is that daily grind that just feels like it never ends it just keeps on coming like kids ability to just keep coming with things that need to be disciplined is just like wow it's impressive like it's but it's exhausting at the same time like how can i say the same thing over and over and over again like god help me but if we love our kids we will be consistent in our discipline even in the times where it's tiring and let our discipline be rooted in in god's word and in grace So godly dads devote their families to the Lord. Godly dads discipline the ones they love. And this might be the most important one and the one that I thought the Lord wanted us to hear the most. Godly dads demonstrate how to follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 15 and 16 says, Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Paul says this phrase in almost all of his letters, either imitate me, or sometimes he'll say, follow me as I follow Christ. What he's saying is, I am demonstrating for you what it looks like to follow Christ. This is exactly what God calls us to do as dads. Here at Family Life Church, we do life groups in the fall and in the spring. We usually take a break for the summer and the winter, because in, w- in the winter, the weather gets a little crazy, and in the summer, everyone's got a lot of stuff going on. Well, we just finished our uh, spring life group session, and I taught a life group on personal finance. And in that life group, I, I shared... Um, What I call the financial order of operations and it kind of shows you what to do with every single dollar you make and I don't know if you know this or not but if you don't tell your dollars where to go they just disappear it's like you get to the end of the month and it's like I don't even know where all the money went what the financial order of operations does is it tells you where to send every dollar so it can be super helpful but I screwed up in the financial order of operations and I made a mistake The first step in the financial order of operations that I made was to set up an emergency fund, because as it turns out, emergency happens in all of our lives all the time. Sometimes we get freaked out and stressed out, whereas if we would've just set up an emergency fund, that hot water heater breaking wouldn't have been so stressful, you would've just paid for it and it would've been no big deal. But the problem is, I made the emergency fund the first step in the order of operations. And that's not what the Bible did. The Bible doesn't make the emergency fund the first step in the order of operations. The Bible makes the first step in the financial order of operations tithing. The way the Bible says it is to give a tithe, which is 10% of your first fruits. The Bible says the first thing we do is we tithe. Now, I didn't leave that out of the financial order of operations because I don't think it's biblical. I actually do think it's biblical. I didn't leave it out because I don't think it's important. I do think it's important. I didn't leave it out because I don't tithe. I do tithe. I left it out because I, do, I made a decision to tithe a long time ago, and I've never really thought about it ever since then. It'd be like if you asked me, what's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning? What I would say is, I go downstairs and I put the coffee on. But that's not really what I do first in the morning. The first thing I do is my heart beats, then I breathe, Then I open my eyes, but I don't really think about those things. Those things just happen naturally, and tithing is that way for for me. The reason that tithing is that way for me is because I watched it be demonstrated by my parents my whole life. Turns out there was 932 Sunday mornings before I went to college. I added them up. 932 Sunday mornings, I watched this be demonstrated. Every Sunday morning, My mom would come, she would write a check, she folds the check in half, she hands it to my dad as he walks out the door, he takes the check, it goes in his suit pocket, he takes up the offering at church, he takes it out of his suit pocket, drops it in the plate. I've watched my dad do that 932 times before I went to college. Every single Sunday, there was never a Sunday where I didn't see my dad do that. And then when we got a little bit older, it would, the offering plate would be coming around, and my mom would give us some change out of her purse, and we would take it, and we would drop it in the plate as it went by. I didn't even know that there was people who didn't do that. I mean, I, I had no idea that there were people who didn't tithe. It just was what, what, what happened in my family. Then when I was 12, I got a job delivering newspapers. It was my first job, and I delivered newspapers to the entire east side of Warsaw. My dad would take, it was the winter when I got the job. My dad would take me down to Trigot Auto, and he would do a U-turn there, which you're not supposed to do. Um, I think it's because of him that they put that up, but he would do a U-turn there, and I would get a sled out of the back of the car, and we would load all the newspapers in the sled, and then he'd go down to Manor Oak, which now there's a hotel there, and there was a dumpster with a little fence around it, and then some trees, and he would take the rest of the newspapers, and he would hide them between the fence and the trees. So I would deliver to half of Warsaw, then I'd go down to Manor Oak and I'd get the rest of the newspapers, put them in my sled, and I'd deliver all the way down here. And then I'd come home, and I'd be tired, and I'd go, ch- go chill for a little bit. But I got my first check for delivering the newspaper from the Warsaw Batavia, or the Batavia Daily News. I got my first check, and I had a list of stuff I wanted to buy. I, wanted, I needed about 10 pocket knives. It was going to be the minimum I needed on those. Um, <laughs> That would get me through a week or two, but then I needed some guns, I needed a bow, I mean there was deer in the backyard, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could kill them if I had a bow and arrow, you know. Um, I needed some army soldiers, I needed some candy, like I needed a bunch, I had a bunch of stuff I needed as a 12 year old. So I was excited. I was like, how do I take this piece of paper that's worth money and get it? I can't take that to the store. Like, how do I get that? And so you've got to go to the bank and you've got to cash it. I said, OK. So we went to cash it. And then I said, can I go to the store and get the stuff that I need? And they said, well, before you do that, the Bible says that we give to God first. And I said, where does it say that? So we looked, and my dad showed me. He said, well, it says it here in the Old Testament in Malachi, and then it says it here, and then in the New Testament, Jesus says it, and then Paul says it, and I said, oh, okay. He said, you know how I put that check in the offering every time? That's what I'm doing is I'm putting God first in my finances because that's where he wants to be in our life. He wants to be first. He doesn't want to be the last thing at the end of the list. He wants to be first. So I said, okay, well, then what? Well, they said, well, we give, and then we save, and then we spend. I said, well, what do we save for? And they said, well, Stuff happens in life, and if you don't get in the practice of saving, then you're going to get yourself in trouble. So I said, okay, so we give, and then we save, and then we spend. That's been ingrained in me my whole life. There's never been a time in my life where I didn't tithe, and I don't say that to like boast in myself or something like that. It was just normal to me, and I believe I've had God's blessing in my, my life financially because of it. But that's the reason I left it out of my financial order of operations, it's not even a decision in my life. It's just what we do in obeying God because I watch that be demonstrated by my parents. This is what Paul is saying. Dads, if you want your kids to follow God, you better follow God. Dads, if you want your kids to be a hard worker, you better be a hard worker. Dads, don't come to me and ask me why your kids don't worship when you sit there and hold down the chair like you're afraid it's going to fly away during church. Maybe if you stand up and open your mouth, maybe if you raise your hands and your kids will become worshipers, if you want God to be first in your kid's life, he can't be the last thing in your life. There was a song uh, a couple, couple years ago by a country artist named uh, Rodney Atkins. It was called Watching You. I wanted to read some of it to you this morning. It's about that very thing. It says, Driving through town just my boy and me, with a Happy Meal in his booster seat, knowing that he couldn't have the toy till his nuggets were gone. Green traffic light turned to red. I hit my brakes and mumbled under my breath. His, fly, his fries went a-flying, and his orange drink covered his lap. Well, then my four-year-old said a four-letter word that started with S, and I was concerned. So I said, son, now, now, where did you learn to talk like that? He said, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be just like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. We got cowboy boots and camo pants. Yeah, we're just alike. Hey, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything you do, so I've been watching you. We got back home and went to the ba- I went to the barn. I bowed my head and I prayed real hard, said, Lord, please help me. Help my stupid self. Then this side of bedtime later that night, Turned on my son's Scooby-Doo nightlight. He crawled out of bed. He got down on his knees. He closed his little eyes and folded his little hands, and spoke to God like he was talking to a friend. I said, now, son, where do you learn to pray like that? He said, Dad, I've been watching you. Dads, your kids are watching you, so you better be careful what they see. Are your kids seeing you put God first in your life? Or is he the last box that you check off your list? Godly dads devote their family to God. Godly dads discipline the ones they love. Godly dads demonstrate how to follow Christ. And lastly, godly dads delight in their children. Matthew 3.17 says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. These were words spoken by God the Father to his 30-year-old son, Jesus was a man by this point. This wasn't just his little son. Jesus was grown. Jesus was about to start his ministry. I don't know what exactly Jesus felt like growing up. And yeah, I'm kind of reading between the lines a little bit here, but it almost seems like the life that Jesus lived here on earth eroded his faith in the fact that his father loved him and was well pleased with him. Jesus was in perfect relationship with the Father. There was no question in Jesus' mind that the Father loved him. Through all of time, Jesus and the Father had been together, and the Father loved him perfectly because he's God, and God is love. He can't do anything but love his son perfectly. But Jesus had lived 30 years, and if I'm, I don't know what happened, but I'm guessing Jesus probably got picked on a couple of times at the playground. I'm guessing Jesus got a couple grades that weren't, weren't very good, I'm guessing Jesus had some hard stuff that happened in life, just like happens to all of us. Life here on earth is hard sometimes, and it erodes our confidence. And it almost seems like Jesus, who is about to step into the most important part of his life, his confidence in the, his love of his Father had been eroded throughout those 30 years. So much so that God thought it was important enough for him to split the sky Speak out of heaven and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If 30-year-old Jesus, who experienced nothing but perfect love from his father, needed to hear that, how much more do you think our kids need to hear that? Do your kids know that you love them? Do they know that you care about them? Oh, of course, yeah, my kids definitely know I love them. I mean, I, I show them for sure, like, I'd worked 15 hours of overtime by Thursday. Then Friday, I got up at five, five o'clock to go bust hump again to put food. And we got inflation. It's costing me 300 bucks a week just to get to work. Like I'm busting hump for my family. Well, hold on a second. I'm not saying what you did wasn't loving. I'm not saying that what you did wasn't even the right thing for your family. But I'm not so sure that your kids will draw the line of correlation between your working a lot and you loving them in fact it's also possible that they will draw the opposite conclusion it's possible your kids will see you work all the time and think work is what's important and you'd rather spend time at work than spend time with them have you told your kids that you love them what about when your kids screw up when your kids screw up do they know that you'll forgive them do do your kids know that you love them even when they screw up I mean, sometimes we look at our kids. I mean, I'm guilty of this for sure. I look at my kids sometimes, and I'm like, what were you thinking? And later, like, I have to remind myself, they were probably thinking the same thing I was when I did that stupid stuff when I was their age. Like, I don't know what I'm thinking. My brain wasn't developed. I was stupid. I was a kid. I was doing what kids do. Do your kids know that you love them? When your kids mess up, do they want to come to you and tell you, or do they want to hide from you? That's kind of a good indication of whether or not your kids know that you'll forgive them and you love them. Psychiatrists tell us that for every negative interaction somebody has with somebody, and most discipline is received as a negative interaction. For every negative interaction someone has, it takes five positive interactions just to bring that person back to neutral just to bring that person back to a baseline. This is not even like building them up so they're doing a lot better. This is just to, just to give them a baseline of existence. For every negative interaction, it takes five positive interactions just to bring us back to neutral. My second point was, a godly dad disciplines those he loves. So we have to discipline our kids. God calls us to discipline our kids. But that means that if we're going to be the ones that have to do the disciplining, we have to invest in that relationship enough that it can carry the weight of that discipline. Paul Johansson says that if you want to bring correction in someone's life, you have to build a bridge of relationship that's strong enough to bear the weight of that correction. Something that we could take out of that just for everybody would be, in general, it's probably not going to be helpful or beneficial for us to walk through life Telling everyone what they're doing wrong. Telling everyone what they should have done. Telling everyone what they could have done. Well, what I would have done would have been, this is probably not going to be well-received and probably not going to be helpful to the people in your life. But when it comes to parenting, we have to give correction. This is our job. So if we have to give correction, and we have to give a lot of it to kids just to keep them alive when they're younger, then that means we have to sow into that relationship so much more affirming our kids, building them up, and building relationship with them so that that relationship can carry the weight of the correction that we have to to give. Dads, let your delight in your kids far outweigh the discipline. Let your delight in your kids far outweigh the discipline. Godly dads devote their families to the Lord. Godly dads discipline the ones they love. Godly dads demonstrate how to follow Christ, and godly dads delight in their kids. I wanted to ask all the dads that are here this morning just to stand up. Yeah, thanks dads. Maybe as I preach this message this morning, maybe you feel like, hey, I'm doing pretty well as a dad, and I hope you do, and I hope you are. But the reality of the situation is, From my interactions with a number of dads, and even myself, most dads, I would say, feel like they're falling short. They feel like life is challenging, and they feel like sometimes they got to rob Peter to pay Paul, and they feel like, i got to work to provide for my family, but I want to spend time with my kids too, and they're kind of like stuck in this place all the time of feeling like they're trying to give their best, but feeling like it's not enough. And I want to remind you dads this morning, the same God that called you to be a dad Happens to be the God that supplies all of you need, all that you need for that thing that He called you to. The same God that called you to be a dad in a day that it's challenging is the same God that will provide all grace. If your dad is here this morning, maybe you could just get around your dad and just lay hands on him. Maybe if your dad is not here, you could find another dad who doesn't have family around him just to lay hands on him. We're just going to go ahead and pray a prayer, a blessing over our dads this morning. So you can do that real quick. Lord, we thank you for our dads. We thank you for the sacrifice that our dads make. We thank you for the weight that our dads carry. And Lord, I ask that today they would find fresh strength and fresh grace from you. They would find that the same God that called them to be a dad would be the God that would provide Grace upon grace. Lord, I ask that grace would abound in each one of these dads' lives. Lord, I ask you to help us to be the dads that you've called us to be. Help us to be godly fathers that set an example for our kids. Lord, I ask that each dad who's here today would be encouraged and strengthened in the fight to be a godly dad. So you bless each one of them. In your name we pray. Amen. I hope you guys have a blessed Father's Day. Dads, we have a gift for you in the foyer. There's a table out there with some candy bars that will give you the energy to fight the good fight. You can grab one out there on your way out.